I thought it good <coughs> today to take a look at something that we reference with regularity. I'm not sure when was the last time. Let me just say it this way. Most people who have the opportunity and privilege to do what I'm doing come to realize, sometimes not quickly enough, but they come to realize that the stuff that's worth saying, you can't say it too often. Typically, there's someone who has not heard this, not with the same clarity. I hope I can be clear today, God willing. But we make reference to the soul and spirit almost every week. The pastor made some distinctions last week out of what? I think it was a recent one, 1 Peter 1.22, about brotherly love. And you've got agapao there, but you also got phileo. And they're both the function of purifying the soul. Now, that's, a, that's an important issue. What about the soul and the spirit? I've entitled this, On the Distinction Between the Human Spirit and Soul. <clears throat> and so, we'll look at some references here. I've, get, I've given you a lot of references in the notes, some of which I may not be able to cover but they are there for your benefit. And I've just arranged this in uh, according to an order of bullet points. It's not an outline per se, but these are some things I excerpted from things I've done in the past, from a series on the Christian life, and some things that I think are worth emphasizing with respect to human anthropology. Anthropology, study of man. Well, biblical anthropology really has much to do with what the Scripture says about the study of man. And very quickly, you will come to some terms that you must, of which you must have some basic working knowledge. And we're going to supply you some definitive observations today so that, and you'll be able to take these notes home with you for future reference. On the distinction between the human spirit and soul, it is sufficiently clear from the scripture that humankind was created tripartite. Now, I put that word there for a reason, tripartite. We are not a trinity. And by the way, I've kind of stopped using the term trinity. I prefer the word triunity. It evokes questions. Triunity with respect to the Godhead. Now, some have sought to draw some analogies, some comparisons between the triunity that is the Godhead and tripartite human nature. Don't do that. Don't do that. Except it be with unusual caution because it will produce more confusion than it does clarifying answers. The fact that you have to contemplate three with respect to humanity. You have to contemplate three with respect to deity. One very obvious difference. We are tripartite. What do we mean tripartite? Three parts. Now, you get into difficulty immediately trying to draw the lines where these parts distinguish. Not easy. It's a very delicate process and one that requires diligence. And really, we need the, the supervisory reference point of the Scripture there. Let me caution you. Humanity does not understand these things. Let Scripture be your, your teacher. 
with respect to the Godhead, we dare not say tripartite. God is not the sum of three parts. God is a triunity. The Godhead is a triunity. And one teacher that's influenced some of us here, the Godhead is one in a way in which it is not three. It is three in a way in which it is not one. In essence, the Godhead is comprised of a unifying, a unified essence that is shared co-equally, co-eternally with three persons. And the persons are distinct. Now, if you don't, if your understanding does not permit you to enlarge on that, leave it there. That's fine. There is nothing else with which to compare the Godhead. Trust me, God the Spirit can help to make you comfortable and give you peace about accepting what Scripture says as you begin the process of refining your understanding of it. God is not three parts. Each part is less than the whole. Not so the Godhead. Okay? So man is tripartite. Humankind is tripartite. The Godhead is not. It is a triunity. All right? Sufficiently clear humankind was created tripartite. That we regard this as axiomatic for the purpose of our study. And what we mean by that, an axiom is an accepted ground rule. We're not going to debate that. Scripture makes it clear. We're going to talk about some observations and we're going to try to systemize those at least to some extent. But we're not here to prove that humanity is tripartite. Um, the very first reference up in the title line there, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, makes that clear beyond controversy. It's clear in the English. It's more clear, more emphatic, more precise in the Greek. <clears throat> that said, legitimate questions remain for the diligent Bible student, not the least of which is, how are these three parts of humanity distinguished one from the other? How does soul, and particularly, how does soul distinguish from spirit? We say, not many of us, or not that often, use the term soulish of or pertaining to the soul. Now, some of us do, but not everybody. Most of us will say spiritual. Spiritual. It's fair for someone. To ask, what do you mean by that when you say that? Spiritual does not is not your excuse for saying, oh, 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 listen. Um, well, it's a lofty subject. Um, let me just say this. If you don't understand it, keep working at it. You'll get it. And I can't explain it, but I know it when I see it or... Spiritual does not automatically mean it transcends explanation. Spiritual does not automatically mean reference a realm of ethereal, uh, ethereal means heavenly, mystical, oh, it's deep, I can't explain it. You know what? There's, there's some definitive statements in Scripture about what is spiritual and what is not. We would start there. And we'll do so. How are these three parts of humanity distinguished one from the other? Now, our focus will be primarily how to distinguish soul from spirit. What does Scripture say? We're not going to answer every question today. 
but we will give you some places to go and, and a page of notes here if you need to have this for future reference. Okay, I'm going to go down through these. We're going to enlarge on each one. The last page, a couple of paragraphs that I've written. We may not have time to cover it. We may kind of piecemeal through it, but it is for your benefit. This is a reference page. What do we mean when we say spiritual? The pastor has talked all of us have talked extensively about the Christian life. That's where the battle is today. Living the Christian life apart from law. Apart from law. And that's emphasized almost every Sunday, every week, once or twice or more. Bible, uh, Bible Institute Monday night, prayer meeting Wednesday night. If you will live the Christian life according to Scripture, it will be done by grace. If you will live the Christian life, you would be spiritual. You cannot live the Christian life without being spiritual. So if someone that you know has been a believer for years, a professing Christian, and can't doesn't have a clue as to what it is to be spiritual, don't pull them up short, don't threaten them, don't insult them. But you are, you are correct to have a little bit of misgiving as to whether they understand the Christian life. If they do not know what it means to be spiritual... You have reason to be uncertain whether they understand the Christian life. If they do not understand the Christian life based on Scripture, the likelihood is they're not enjoying it. They're not experiencing it to any significant degree. Salvation, first bullet point. Salvation initially impacts the immaterial human spirit in regeneration. Regeneration, birth again. And I said immaterial because it's not material. You can't touch it. It is literal. It is real. Do not make your definition of real to be dependent on what you can touch and taste and feel and handle. It is immaterial. It is very real. It has, I will suggest to you, substance in a qualified sense, but not matter. Now, I'm not a scientist, but I'm going to use that as long as it serves us here. It is immaterial. It does have spirit substance. Substance, based on a dictionary definition, the thing of which the entity subsists. Now, I haven't defined substance, but I've kind of used it in a way that will give you opportunity to deal with it. It's immaterial. The immaterial human spirit is what's impacted by regeneration. At initial salvation, new birth... According to this here, God quality of life, Scripture calls it life eternal. When we say life eternal, this is what we're talking about. God quality of life imparted by birth, a birth process, in the once dead human spirit. Let's make a distinction. I heard someone on the radio this week, Dave Jeremiah, actually say that <clears throat> death is probably in every consideration... This obtains, when you're contemplating death, separation. Now, that's going to have to be taught. 
because most people will not go there. But biblically, you're wise to go there. In every case where you contemplate death, physical death, spiritual death, separation. Spiritual death does not mean you are inanimate. It means your human spirit is apart, separated from the manifestation of the life of God. You do not possess eternal life. That doesn't mean you're walking dead in a physical sense. But spiritually, you're separated. That needs to, there needs to be a meeting on a friendly basis. That only happens with salvation. Life eternal imparts God's quality of life to the human spirit in what we call regeneration. Scripture calls regeneration. Your two references, John 3, 5 and 6, Jesus answered, this is Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, that has some theological implications we won't unpack today. But your second verse here, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Regeneration takes place as a consequence, a happy consequence of the God the Spirit's activity of birthing life that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, in your human spirit. That's where you're saved. Now, I will say something that I'm not going to prove here, but it probably doesn't need to be proven. The full package of benefit from the finished work of Christ has not yet been applied to every part of you. Paul prays in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that you will begin to experience the benefit of some of that in each part. He prays that you will. That will only happen as you're spirit-led, as you're yielded to the Godhead, obediently. But the, the full benefit of the finished work of Christ in your physical body has not been a part of your experience yet. And if you doubt that, come see me. I'm 72 years old. I cannot do some of the things I did when I was younger. I was a track star. I was very quick. I could run, I could jump. I mean, I was the fastest kid I knew. Not anymore. I hit a hot grounder in the infield if I can get wood on the ball. I can't make it to first base. Same speed I used, I fall down. I can't get my knees up high enough. What's up with that? That's a bad feeling. Especially when the fans are watching you. I can't do the things I used to. I'm dying. <laughs> Don't be laughing. <laughs> Salvation imparts... Life eternal to the human spirit. The benefits of the finished work of Christ and redemption, though certain, our brother back in the back row today was on the front row last week, said there are things with God agreed. There are things with God which are done. They're certain right now. But they haven't happened to us yet in our experience. The benefits of the finished work of Christ have not yet been experienced by us, but they're certain. God's going to finish what he started. You are going to get a new body and your soul which we'll learn very quickly, is not yet saved, is going to be saved. They're yet to be experienced for the New Testament grace believer in both soul and body. Then we say the soul is not yet saved. Listen as I read 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. And I'm aware our pastor just went over this within the last 10 days. But let's emphasize it. Whom, Peter is referencing Christ, whom having not seen ye love, he's talking to the diaspora, 
in whom though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 1 Peter 1 verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, the finish point of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, if you let the text say what it says, your souls are not yet saved, they're going to be, for sure. But right now they're not. Okay, salvation impacted me in my human spirit. My soul is not yet saved. To the extent that I have a soul and a spirit, and I do, based on Scripture, tripartite <coughs> human nature. Wow. Um, that's going to be a problem. I got a fan of the flesh and a fan of the spirit locked in the same room at game time. They are not going to get along. Serious business. Your soul is not yet saved. Your body does not do what you want it to do on certain days, and your soul doesn't either. It is not spiritual. Spiritual is a basic definition, that a basic definitive observation that will serve you in every place you contemplate it. To be spiritual is to be or do the things that characterize the Spirit. You have been joined to the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 6.17. You've been joined as if it's one unbroken quality. You did not become God, but you've been joined to the Spirit of God. You are able to comport yourself in a manner that demonstrates, that emanates the things of the Spirit of God. Well, how do I know when I am? I just, you know, I don't, do you think I'm, I'm a young person, maybe just got saved, six, eight, ten years old, can that person be spiritual? Do you know that the individual, the moment they get saved, is being spiritual? They're being spiritual. How about that? Let's move on. Both of these immaterial parts of the human person, somebody does, young, do you have notes? You have notes there, right? Okay. Both of these immaterial parts of the human person, the soul and the spirit, influence the function of the mind. Oh boy, the mind. Where does the mind fit in all of this? Because you are a thinking being, you have a mind and it is influenced by both your spirit and your soul. Now, we established that the spirit and the soul don't naturally want to dance in the same space. The soul is going to step on the feet of its dance partner every time it gets a chance. Guaranteed. The spirit is going to have to lead. But you cannot kick the soul to the curb. You need it for humanity. It is a good part of your humanity. But know this, saint, it needs to be disciplined. <clears throat> the mind, we're going to say, is the intellectual faculty. Wow. Do we need to define that further? Well, we can't right now. We don't have time. But it's your, it's your intellectual capabilities. That's what Thayer says, the intellectual faculty. Thayer is a Greek lexicographer. He's all about dictionary when it comes to New Testament uh, writing. Both the soul and spirit, here, both the soul and spirit influence the mind and both are essential to normative human life. And what I mean by that is, I had a brother who's mentally retarded. He's with the Lord now. He's brain damaged. He never reaches chronological 
his emotional maturity. He died when? Oh, 15, oh, 17. So he would have been about, I don't know, 65 to 70. Some, some, I can't remember exactly when he died. But he was intelligent, but he never reached his full potential. He was a great, he had a prodigious memory. Now, some people are sufficiently damaged, you may know some, that it's hard to contemplate them functioning in the mind the way we contemplate here. This is a general statement, barring some limited exception. Both the soul and spirit influence the mind. The mind is your intellectual faculty. Both are essential to normative human life. While distinct, the soul and spirit, there is no scripture that suggests they ever separate. What are we saying? What about when we die? We said death is separation. What separates a death? I'm going to give you two references to, to show you that soul and spirit are both essential to human life. But they never separate. They seem to be together all the time. Genesis 2, 7. So when one leaves the human body at death, that's your separation, the other one goes too. That's what seems to be the, the, the weight of the biblical evidence. Genesis 2.7, and it's going to be quoted again. Paul references it in 1 Corinthians 15.45. He references this text. And the Lord, Genesis 2.7, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives, and man became a living soul. The New Testament, or the biblical translators have done us well here. That is the word for soul. There is a different word for spirit. Know this if you picked up nothing so far. The soul and spirit essential to tripartite humanity are not the same. Do not interchange these words. Do not interchange these concepts. Your understanding of New Testament theology is going to depend on you being able to keep that distinct. You may not understand everything you hear about this, but be absolutely convinced the soul and spirit are not the same. Good for you. And there are, have you heard people, have, people are preaching today, well, it's in some really of good reputation. Ah, it's, a, it's a kind of a thorny, ah, they're, really, uh, they're really kind of one and the same. It's the immaterial part of, by the way, I'm going to just say it. Very well known, well respected with the Lord now, so he knows better. Teacher from Dallas. Some of you have a study Bible. Basically, relaxed his position on this and accommodated the notion that the soul and the spirit are the same. Basically talking broadly about the same realm. And he said, it's unarguable. Wait a minute. It is arguable. They are not. First Thessalonians 5.23. I'll read it quickly and you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but listen as I read. This is Paul's prayer. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body. He distinguishes them there in the English. In the Greek, he distinguishes them more precisely. Unarguable, Dr. So-and-so, not so scripture. In the scripture, you have a definite article with the spirit, the soul, the body. This is meant to distinguish with an identifier. It is absolutely incontrovertible. 
So what's our point as we move on? Distinguishing the soul and the spirit. <clears throat> Genesis 2.7, man became a living soul. The soul is essential to the life that God imparted to Adam in the garden. The soul. It's a part of humanity. James 2.26. Now, there are a lot of theological implications from the James 2 passage, but we'll make one here. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Among the things we learn from this, the body without the spirit is dead. Pardon me? The spirit is life. Well, <laughs> in both Hebrew, you're not wrong, in both Hebrew and Greek, the word spirit has a range of meaning. It can mean breath, it can mean wind, but very clearly by context, it does mean spirit where the context is clear. And the context here is clear. <clears throat> We're going to have to move a little bit down at this Oh, what would it be? Your third, your fourth bullet point. Third bullet point. <clears throat> the soul gives life to the body. What have we said? You have to have a spirit to be alive. You have to have a soul to be alive for your body to be alive. It is the soul that animates the body, gives it movement. So listen carefully as we make this point. Some animal life possesses an animal soul, an animating principle for that physical body. Now, I'm not going to say a cockroach does. I don't know. But I do know that in several references in Scripture, and I've given you one of them on the other side. I'll make a note of it when we get there quickly. All life, all souls. And the term in that context extends beyond humanity. Spirit is essential to life, soul is essential to life. Luke 16, 19, it is not a parable. Luke 16, 19 through 31. And let me say to you that the man's suffering in this factual account is suffering physical pain. Wait a minute. I thought he, his soul and spirit separated from his body. Where's the pain coming from? I believe he has a temporary body. And this is at least, this is strongly suggested, I believe clearly taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 2. You will have an intermediate body your humanity yearns to be clothed over. Your soul and spirit, the immaterial part of you, clothed over with a form. It's a part of your intrinsic humanity. You will feel, you will have feeling that is literally translated by your soul to your brain. Your physical sensations. How do you know that it's pain? My soul is telling my brain, I'm in a world of hurt here. There's a three alarm going down. I need help. 
Your soul animates your body. Your soul translates your, your appetites and your sensations to your intellect. It registers as pain or delight or joy. And there are verses in your notes here. There's a Luke, Luke 12 and there's also a, a reference from Revelation 18 that talk about addressing it, the, the, the Scripture addresses the soul and talks about the soul enjoying those pleasurable things that it, it receives through the senses. Touch, taste, smell, fine perfume, a sensation that the human being requires a soul to appreciate. Food. You're not going to taste your food. You're not going to be able to move your jaw without your soul. You're not going to be able to taste that good pork roast without your soul. Sweetie Pie, write that down. I haven't had any pork roast in a while. You're not going to feel without your soul. <coughs> Luke 16, he felt. He was in pain. He wanted water. He must have thirsted. He said, dip your finger in the water, touch, you know, cool me. I said, no. There's a great gulf fixed between. Now, there's a horrifying implication in Mark chapter 9, and I'll just tell you quickly. The sin nature goads like a, 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 a hot poker, goads your flesh. The pastor made reference to it in um, 1 Peter, what? 2.11, 2 Peter 2.11. 1 Peter 2.11, it's in your notes, I got it right. 1 Peter 2.11. Lust, strong desire, burning desire. You have to look at the context to decide what that burning desire is about. The, the sin nature attacks you through your soul. Attacks Carl through his soul. Attacks Cindy, attacks Kevin, attacks me through the soul. The soul is a point of vulnerability. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, it's not yet saved. Oh, wow. We got an enemy guarding the gate. You've been regenerated in your mind. Your mind, your, your, in your human spirit. Your human spirit, we're going to talk about that very quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Your human spirit is your cognitive rationale. Your cognitive self-awareness. Let's go quickly and I'll, I'll try to do this quickly. The Mark 9 references, you have three of them, Mark 9.44, Mark 9.46, and Mark 9.48. They all talk about the worm dying not. There's a strong theological implication where when you look at this theme in Scripture of the worm dying not, even in the fire, and the fire very clearly is a fire that will never be quenched. And it references a, uh, a reference in Isaiah 66, the worm here is a reference to a worm that feasts on dead things. Feasts on decay. Many people believe, and I've come to believe with them, that the worm in this reference is a reference to the sin nature. Now, the unsaved and eternal punishment, no benefit of relief from the, from the influence of sin. What happened to their sin nature? Still there. Uh, don't give me any names, but do you know anybody that's just got a compelling craving for something that's not good for them? 
I mean, it'd be easy to pick an alcoholic, right? It'd be nice. It'd be nice if we didn't have to. That's that's an obvious one. Can't give up liquor. Can't give up addictive substance. Can you imagine being goaded by the sin nature with that strong desire and never being able to satisfy it? You imagine that? There's a strong hint in Mark chapter 9 that that will be the experience of the unrighteous. Forever. Try that on. You thought you could resist eating ice cream for two or three hours till you finally gave in. Went to the refrigerator and got uh, some Breyers ice cream. Try having a compelling obsession for something that you cannot control and never being able to quench it. The worm dieth not. The sin nature, I believe, will go with the unrighteous. He has no benefit from redemption. No benefit. You still got a sin nature from everything I read in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. And I've, I've said verse 9 through 16. <clears throat> As it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for, the, for them that love him. Now, there's a temptation here to say this is heaven. It is not. We've taught on this before. It is not heaven here by context. It is something that has to do with a content of wisdom made available. In the context, starting back at the middle half, the, the end of chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 2, this has to do with wisdom, degrees of wisdom. But God hath revealed them, what? The things that God hath prepared for them that love them. God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit, the third person of deity, the Holy Spirit, whom the Lord in, in the upper room promised to be your comforter and teacher. He's revealed them to us by His Spirit. He's revealed content that is informative, but you could not know except He pulls the curtain back and shows you. There's a content of something having to do with a degree of wisdom, which is for your benefit. He's prepared it for you. You wouldn't know it. Wouldn't dawn on you. But He's revealed it by the Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, and the term for searching there is the, the term for deep investigation. Search the Scripture, for in them you find salvation, things pertaining to life eternal. This is a word for deep investigation. The Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. This content of wisdom has to do with the deep things of God prepared for your benefit, but it wouldn't dawn on you except the Spirit would teach it to your human spirit, which God has already prepared His birth, life eternal in you. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the Spirit of the man? Who knows the things concerning the things intimate to our brother back there in the corner, but his human spirit? Your self-awareness. You want to share a secret you do with a close friend and you trust him to keep it a secret. God help them if they don't keep it a secret. Who's the authority? Outside of God. Who's the authority on the things that can be known about you? You are. If you're clear-headed. 
The spirit is your cognitive self-awareness. We look at the term mind in Scripture five times it's used in 2 Corinthians come Wednesday night. Our brother, our pastor Kevin is talking about this. He's mentioned it numerous times. Five times the word for mind in Scripture. Now, mind, you don't have a mind if you don't have a brain. Your mind depends on the organ of your physical body. Your soul influences your mind, your appetites, your emotions, and so on. And your cognitive rationale influences your mind. The mind is what your adversary, the devil, wants to target. The sin nature targets you through the soul. Your soul influences your mind. The devil wants to influence your mind. The workings of your mind, specifically the conclusions of your mind, your rational thought. Your human spirit had better be on guard. Or you're going to give away the farm. Verse 11 is your definitive verse. What man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of a man which is in him? We're talking about spirit, right? Even so, the things of God, the deep things of God, verse 10, knoweth no man because they have to be revealed. But who does know them? The Spirit of God. The content that's knowable, that can be understood, that feeds rational calculus is the realm of your spirit. That needs to be born again. That needs to benefit from direct input of God. And frankly, Scripture says very clearly, you are at enmity with God until that happens. And when that happens, you have a capacity to begin to be taught the deep things of God and to get a handle on the soul. Now, I'm out of time. I've given you a lot of notes here. There is great consistency between the Old and New Testament with the use of the term soul and the use of the term spirit, particularly in the New Testament. <coughs> but it's important for you to be aware <coughs> that soul, can have a, soul has a range of meaning and can be of general reference to living things. There's more we could tell you about that. But when you get to the New Testament, I think I'm safe in saying overwhelmingly, Kevin, do you have an opinion about this? How often the soul in the New Testament in the doctrinal passages is not, you don't at least have to contemplate the emotions. It, it's, it, it, would you agree it's broadly? There aren't a whole lot of, of, of uh, exceptions to that. I, I, I haven't found many. If you are unable to differentiate between the soul and the spirit, you will not know how to deal with the fact that your soul is under attack. Your spirit's under attack. Through the mind. The devil wants your thoughts. He wants your conclusions. Well, that shouldn't affect us today. I mean, we've got... i got any number of news sources that I can go to for accurate information, which will all inform my rational conclusions. Saint, 
Uh, Lynn's kind of smiling a wry smile. Get with us after class. You need your information sourced in the Word of God. It's probably not going to tell you when the enemy's going to invade. I mean, here on earth. But it will certainly put you on guard with respect to spiritual enemies. You need to be informed by the Word of God. Okay. Um, more we could say. The mind, the functional intellect, I've got that at the end here. Then I've given a bit of a synopsis. Um, I'm going to go quickly to 1 Corinthians 15. Go quickly to 1 Corinthians 15. And this can be a very helpful passage. Kevin, I will tell you, and Don, <laughs> Byron Knudsen is the one who directed me here, and it was years ago while he was still with us, but I said, <coughs> where is the proof that the soul and spirit are distinct? First Corinthians 15, we start about, I don't know, verse, maybe verse 42. 41, there is one, this is, a, this is the pivotal passage on resurrection of the body. And the stages of the resurrection are detailed here, and we'll talk about that in our eschatology class. There is one glory of the sun, there is another glory of the moon. This is hierarchical ranks of good opinion. And another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. And when you look at reward for Old Testament saints, this becomes kind of instructive because it talks about varying degrees of glory. <coughs> Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. That's a word that means it'll rot. It is raised in incorruption. 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. No question that they're talking, to, Paul's talking here about the physical body. It is raised a spirit. Uh, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Now look at verse forty-four of First Corinthians fifteen. How many of you have King James? Raise your hands. How many of you do not? Okay. What is your translation? Oh, oh, okay. Here's where the King James reads: It is sown. It is buried. A natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, the translators did not help us. In some cases they do, in some cases they don't. I don't know if they understood this. It is, it is sown a natural body. The word natural there is the word psuchikos and should be translated soulish. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, we would all agree that the resurrection body for New Testament saints is a spiritual body. But, oh, wait a minute. Be careful. Because when you say that, many people just automatically believe because it's spiritual, it's immaterial, it's ethereal. These bodies are both, brother, tell me, are they physical? No. Yeah. This one is. Your resurrection body will be a physical body. Will be. Yeah. It will be a physical body when it's raised. It is sown... A physical body, you've seen dead bodies, you've seen bodies in caskets and coffins, they're physical. The resurrection body of our Lord was a physical body. Still is. 
without sin. And everything we read in Scripture says it doesn't possess blood. It's not rottable. It will not decay, but it is for sure a physical body. Both of these bodies you contemplate in this verse are physical. The one that died is soulish. It emanates the things of the soul. What does the soul do? The soul animates this physical body. The body that comes out of the grave will be for sure. Physical body. Thomas, come, touch my hand. Put your finger in the hole in my hand. Give me some fish to eat. I'm hungry. You're going to be able to eat. There's going to be food after the resurrection. The tree of life produces food. The tree of life, the fruit from the tree of life is available to New Testament grace believers right now. Why? That's a subject for a different time. Both of these bodies are physical. One wants to do the things of the soul, which is not yet saved. The one at the resurrection wants to do, wants to cooperate with the spirit, which is saved. Oh my, what a, what, what, what a deal. What a deal. Your emotions are not going to trouble you after the resurrection. Your emotions probably don't trouble you now. <laughs> Talk to your wife. Um, what a deal. You know what is necessary for you to be spiritual? For you to be spiritual, to submit your rational self-awareness, your cognitive faculties to the instruction of the Word of God. Kevin and I talk occasionally and, and, and not, you said, I will be spiritual. We talked about going to Oregon. I'm doing this for the saints. I will be spiritual. Well, can you tell when you're spiritual? Ask a believer that. They don't know. They don't know. Yeah, you can be spiritual. Adjust your thinking so that you are absolutely submitted in obedience to the instruction of the Word of God. Oh, I don't know the Word of God because I haven't studied it. Get busy. Study it. You cannot be obedient to the Word of God if you don't read your Bible every week. Your pastor says that from this pulpit. Read your Bible. Why? So that you can be spiritual. Your cognitive self-awareness can obey the gentle, bless his heart. I don't know if you can say that. Bless him, the gentle, compelling, urging of the gentle Holy Spirit. Don't grieve him. Oh, unavailable. Him say the word. Quench him. Grieve him. Study the Word so that your cognitive self-awareness can be lined up with the instruction of Scripture. And guess what? <laughs> It'll keep a leash on that soul that just wants to run wild, step on the company's feet, eat all the potato chips on the counter, eat all the candy, and then run outside and leave the door open. 